And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I'm recording this podcast on uh, New Year's Eve and reflecting on uh, what a year 2019 has been. Obviously, a great year for most investors and another year where a lot of people keep thinking this must be the year of the big pullback, of the big bear market. Fooled again, huh? Well, I've got uh, um, I've got a number of comments I'll make about the performance for 2019 after I have a chance to see the final numbers. So, not in this podcast, but certainly in the next. Uh, I've got a number of Q and As, but before I do that, I, I want to talk for a second about our plans for 2020. And uh, we don't have everything uh, figured out yet, but here's what we're working on that uh, we hope will be helpful to investors uh, in the coming years. But in 2020, uh, the book that Rich Buck and I have been working on, uh, the book discussing the $12 million investment decisions and two funds for life, I hope to have that out by the first quarter. Uh, we also, uh, Chris Pedersen is working on his uh, own book regarding uh, all the research that he has done on the two funds for life and other investment uh, uh, topics important to, to, to Chris and important to helping others do better w- with their investments. Not sure when that will be out, but uh, certainly should be during 2020. Uh, We will continue to uh, work on the portfolios at Fidelity, Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, Schwab, um, and uh, the the best-in-class work with ETFs that Chris has worked so hard on. We'll we'll, we'll be um, fine-tuning a lot of the different things. We've uh, a lot of the different portfolios, so uh, stay tuned on that. Uh, we noted lately that we have put a hold on 401k plans, either reviewing old ones or adding new ones, until we figure out exactly what we're going to do uh, in terms of, of that commitment. Uh, what has complicated matters is that um, we, we have added the two funds for life. So it seems to me that if we're going to do our job and give recommendations to the uh, the 401k plans, we need to talk about our recommendations for those using the ultimate buy and hold strategy. This is the strategy that could have up to 10 different uh, U.S. and international equity asset classes plus as many as three different uh, bond uh, classes. Uh, so we'll, we would do the ultimate, and then we would also make recommendations for several levels of risk within the two funds for life. Um, we, in fact, normally we don't have all of the equity asset classes available when we're trying to put together the ultimate buy and hold, but we also uh, do not have all of the 
uh, asset classes available when we're putting together the two funds for life. In fact, I'm surprised to find out that there are a, a lot of 401k plans that don't offer a, uh, a target date fund, but uh, but they probably will before the uh, uh, next year or two. The um, the the important thing is is that we give a more complete description about how people can use these different asset classes. So what I'm intending to do, this is not cast in stone now, but this is what I'm intending to do, is to probably do work on five or ten 401k uh, plans. These would be five or ten of the very largest uh, in the country. And uh, to do the, 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 the full uh, analysis so that we really can help people, including uh, a podcast that I would do or an audio piece uh, that I would do specifically about that particular plan. Uh, we're not sure whether in the long run we're going to make those completely free or there'll be a small charge. There obviously is a, a cost uh, to have people uh, spend time doing the work that needs to be done. Uh, and certainly uh, I'm running out of time, and I'll talk a bit about that in a second. Uh, not only running out of time in terms of how many more years I have to work, but how many hours in a, in, a, in a week I can get in to do all of the things that we've undertaken. But uh, whether we charge a little or, or nothing yet to be determined, we are going to do more. Uh, and again, we're going to start with a few, see what people think, get some feedback before we take it uh, the next step. Other than that, I have to uh, announce that I have, in essence, gone through uh, three inter what I'll call interventions uh, with people who are important to me, uh, one with uh, my children, one with my wife, and one with uh, the folks that I work with. And these uh, interventions were about my addictive work habits and uh, trying to convince me to slow down. Well, I think one of the things that triggered this was when I sent them all a list of all of the things I have planned to do this year. I'll be speaking in, in Westport, Connecticut, in New York City, in Boston, in San Diego, uh, in uh, uh, Palo Alto. Uh, I'll be doing a White Coat Investor Conference in March. Uh, in Las Vegas, I'll be doing uh, Tom and Cock and Don McDonald's um, uh, annual conference here in the Seattle area on February 22nd. Uh, plus, I'm uh, accumulating, well, I've got a, uh, presentations to make, a couple of them at Western. Uh, plus, I've been invited to do the commencement address for the business of, of uh, the College of Business and Economics at Western, so and then of course the new the new book and all of these new plans that I have, and um, people I love uh, read that and said, "Wait a minute, 
When do we get your time? Well, that was one thing that people asked. And uh, the other uh, asked whether we could really do a good job on all of these projects. And the other question that came up, and it's made me do a lot of thinking, is the question of where is our work doing the most good? Uh, During uh, 2019, I traveled around to uh, AAII chapters, and uh, an an important question uh, that came up was, uh, is this a group of people who really need your help? Are you changing lives? And I think of the sea of gray hair that I typically speak to at an AAII chapter because they, like like myself, have been around the investment process for a long time. And actually, they know a lot about investing. And I think the people who are trying to help me get better focus are are probably right. Uh, I may enjoy being there. In fact, it truly is the low-hanging fruit for me to be able to speak to AAII chapters because I've been doing it since about 1984, and I have a long history of working with those people and trying to help them. But you know something? I think my kids and, and staff and, and my wife are probably right that if I made a list of the people who really need help, given that I only have a, a, number, a, a small number of years left to be able to help, uh, should I be helping the old-timers who are already pretty doggone savvy, or should I be helping younger people, high school children and, and, and uh, college students, and then those who are, are just starting their first 401k? And I guess th- th- that's the reality, that uh, that's where I'm going to have the biggest impact on uh, on the longest lives, if in fact our information is of uh, of value at all, and I think that it is. And I get lots of feedback from you folks. And, and by the way, not only do I get lots of kind comments, but uh, certainly the contributions that you made uh, during the, the last year are much appreciated. I don't know the total, but I'm, I'm guessing that we probably had contributions of... Uh, almost $20,000. So, uh, and then uh, I personally put in $50,000 to make sure that we had enough money to, to uh, meet our cost of, uh, of operation for, for 2019. But, uh, but we did it. And, and, uh, and I really do appreciate what you folks have done uh, to help us uh, underwrite and, and support the projects that were uh, that we're doing to try to help others. So, uh, long story short, uh, at this point, I'm absolutely going to fulfill the commitments that I have made through the middle of June. And then I'm going to do my best to make sure that my time is focused on on uh, those groups of people that need the most help it's a lot more work trying to get to college students than it is to people who uh, are already seasoned investors and understand uh, uh, the language 
that I speak and write. Uh, and, and so it, it's, a, it's a big decision. But um, I've, I've promised all that, uh, that have indicated they would like to see me get more efficient that I'm going to do my best to do it online. Uh, I, I kiddingly say that I should be able to do everything I do in the future um, uh, in my pajamas. Well, that isn't going to work out because I am committed in the month of April uh, here on Bainbridge. I'll be making 10 presentations for what we call Celebrating Financial Literacy. April is Financial Literacy Month, and we're going to work real hard to to, uh, help uh, educate uh, lots of people here on Bainbridge Island and expect to do that in future years. So, uh, but, but, but the bottom line is, is I'm going to focus on the Northwest in terms of, of personal presentations, but uh, my national work will be spending more times uh, with my computer in podcasts and in the studio with videos and working on articles than flying from city to city uh, to make uh, presentations to, to groups of folks. I know that we're doing a lot of good work on the internet through the podcasts and uh, and the articles uh, and the videos. I, I, here are two quotes that came in in just the last few days. One says, thank you for sharing your knowledge about investing, an area I was never taught, not by my family and definitely not in school. And I am pleased to help in the education of that investor. And here's another one, um, a local person that's followed our work for many years. Uh, He says, hi, Paul, I love you. By the way, I don't personally know this gentleman, so (laughs) I think what he means is he likes the work that we're doing uh, and everything you do. I have our Roths invested, the... uh, as well as the ultimate buy-and-hold portfolio with our Boeing VIP, that is the uh, Boeing 401k plan, using a 60-40, 60 equity, 40 fixed income. And my two kids have started two funds for life, Roths at Vanguard. Boy, does that feel like we've done something to help that family. Thank you for that comment. All right, let's take some questions. Let me take a take a tough one first here. Uh, this um, follower says, I use the ultimate buy and hold strategy as recommended at Fidelity using ETFs. Notice today my one-year rate of return was about 5% less than the S&P 500. Should the, that be the case, and if so... Should I just invest everything I have in the S&P 500 index fund? I think it's a great question, and I think there is hopefully a meaningful education to be had in in the answer of this question, because number one, there's nothing wrong with the S&P 500 index fund. We know that that fund has a compound rate of return of about 10% for the last 90 years. And along the way, it had many years, many years, that it made more than 20, more than 30%. 
and this was certainly one of those years. There were other years that lost a lot of money as well, and of course, lots of years that it, it the, the, its return uh, was somewhere between a minus ten and a and a and a plus twenty, but uh, it always looks so easy. Uh, as I've said many times, there is no risk in the past because we know we should have done, we could have done something that was better because there's literally almost always something uh, that has a better return. And yes, and when the S&P 500 is number one, it is, it is very easy for people because they know the companies, uh, they're basically mostly large, well-known names, not all, but most, uh, but particularly the, the big 50 that you would uh, recognize virtually all those names. The, um, uh, it just makes it look like, gee, uh, when you can do better with those names we know and trust, isn't that a better place to be than someplace where I might not even know the names and and, and Merriman's recommending I put some of the money even in international securities where I really don't know the names in most cases. So one year does not give us enough information to know what is the right thing to do. There is no reason to believe that the S&P 500 will perform much differently than the 10%, I, I think uh, it's reasonable, 8 to 10%, just as with small cap value, even though the average 40-year return is something like 16% going back to 1928. Uh, I suspect that the, is as many people who now know about it as do, that the return will probably be between 10 and 12. Could be more, certainly could, uh, just as the S&P 500 Yes, it's gotten 10 in the past, but it wouldn't surprise me if future returns are closer to 8. But I don't know, of course. What I do know is that in virtually every 40-year period, uh, the small cap value has done better than the S&P 500. In fact, all of the asset classes, with the exception of one, which is almost the same asset class but international, that is the large cap blend international or developed markets fund, which is in essence the similar kind of portfolio as you have for the U.S. in the S&P 500, large cap blend, mostly driven by growth. That's the way it, that's the way it works. But all the other other asset classes have in the past uh, done better than the S&P 500. Now, some of them are not very consistent. They may do just a whale of a lot better, like emerging markets, or a whale of a lot less. But remember, we only have 10% of our equity portfolio in emerging markets. And, uh, and the differences... Uh, on the upside and the and, and the downside, will be broadly a, a different. As a matter of fact, the average annual return, whether it's better or worse, the average difference between the S and P five hundred and the small cap value 
asset class is about 15%, not 5%, 15%. And with the large cap value, that return difference is about 7% a year going back to 1928. So if you're going to have this broadly diversified portfolio, there will be lots of of, of years that it will underperform the S&P 500 because the S&P 500 will be number one. Sometimes it will be number one for a number of years in a row. The period from 95 to 99, the S&P 500 compounded at over 28% for five years, while the ultimate buy and hold strategy compounded at about 11 And then that was followed with 10 years of the S&P 500 losing money, losing money at a rate of about 1% a year compounded. That includes the reinvestment of dividends, by the way, uh, while the broadly diversified portfolio was making, depending on uh, where you invested, somewhere between 7 and 9% from 2000 to 2009. So, uh, as as, uh, as some famous politician recently said, get used to it. It looks like if you're going to stay the course with the ultimate buy and hold strategy, uh, you should get used to this uh, major difference, not just of five percent, but of a lot more than five percent, as part of that uh, as that process. And I guess I could add a thought to this decision that you have to make. I don't know how old you are, but 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 let me assume um, that you're young and you have many years ahead of you to invest. There's some big decisions to be made. How much in equities? How much in fixed income? How much in equities when you're just getting started in your 20s, in your 30s? Maybe none. Maybe none. Maybe you take uh, the uh, the risk of an all-equity portfolio during the, the first 20 years, and then you start adding fixed income. And then by the time you're in your 60s, maybe you've got uh, 40 or 50% of your money in, uh, in fixed income. I'm 76, and I'm 50% in fixed income and 50% in equities uh, in the buy-and-hold portion of, uh, of our portfolio. And the equities that you select, whether they be small cap or large or value or growth, they, in theory, should be part of uh, of a plan that you have. Because we don't know what, what the S&P 500 will produce, but if we're building a plan, it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect it to make 8 to 10%. And if you want to be conservative and you know how much money you think you need when you retire to have the uh, inflation-adjusted distribution to meet your cost of living, there is a number out there. You should know that number. You should know how much 40 years from now you need to draw on in order to give you a certain 4% 4% distribution or 5% distribution, fixed or variable Big decisions. But as you look from now to 40 years from now, 
it's important that you that you that you realize that if you put everything in the S&P 500 and if you make an 8 or a 10% compound rate of return plus you're going to add you're going to add bonds along the way that with the S&P 500 given whatever that long-term number is you should put more money in if you expect to get 8 to 10 than if you get 10 to 12 in small cap value. Or whatever that difference might be, it's going to dictate how much money you put in, just like your assumptions for inflation are going to dictate how much money you should put in. There's a plan to be developed, and that plan has to do with your saving discipline and the equity asset classes you have to select from and how much you put in each one. And you could just make up numbers about future returns, but why not look at the past and use those numbers less some factor that reduces the expectation? And maybe means you got to save a little more because if you get great returns for the next 40 years, you may not have to have all your money in equities. You, you may get away with having a lot of your money in fixed income because you get, you get a lot more than expected from equities. You don't know. But you got to have a plan or you plan not to plan and not, and not to ha- have those numbers. But I think if you come to the conclusion... I like the S&P 500 better. I know the companies. I know the country. I trust their their system. I trust something more than I trust having smaller companies and international companies, etc. Emerging markets, nah, too risky in your mind, maybe. That's okay. But if you do, I want you to be realistic and plan on, on investing more That's it. Investing more because you're putting your money into something that has a lower overall risk and therefore a lower return. The beauty of the ultimate buy and hold strategy is that, that yes, all of those small cap value U.S. and international and large cap value and emerging markets, all of those things are more volatile than the S&P 500, but you put them together in a group and it turns out that the overall volatility is very similar to the S&P 500. That's one of the reasons I'm not uncomfortable with the idea of having money in something other than the S&P 500 that's likely to give you a higher return because the mixture of those asset classes reduce the overall volatility. All right, let's move on to question number two. Uh Hi, Paul. Big fan here. What do you think about AV, that's V as in Victor, D, D as in dog, V as in Victor, A-V-D-V? Now, what do you think about this ETF for small cap value international in comparison to the wisdom tree uh, diversified, basically small cap value international fund. And um, I'm glad somebody finally asked me about this. It, it's it's uh, 
early uh, for us to include this particular ETF in our portfolio, but I will tell you it's been on our radar even before it became uh, available to the public. We have been waiting uh, patiently uh, to have not only this, but a whole family of ETFs and uh, uh, mutual funds come to the public. And this, these uh, ETFs and open-end mutual funds have been developed by a group of people who left dimensional funds and started a, a, a new organization. I believe it's pr- pronounced Avantis. Uh, and um, and the reason we knew about it is because young fellow, well, a lot younger than I am, as a matter of fact, his his father, Bo Cornell. Some people uh, may know uh, Jeff's dad, Bo Cornell, who who played uh, professional football as well as uh, playing football uh, for the University of Washington. But Jeff was servicing at DFA. Uh, the, the Merriman Wealth Management Company uh, on behalf of DFA. He was the guy that when we needed something from DFA, by golly, Jeff got it for smart guy. Uh, and, um, and, and the story behind Jeff's father, Bo, is that uh, and he's retired now from DFA, but Bo was responsible for helping the Merriman Company uh, have access to DFA funds. They're they're not always easy to get access to, and, and Bo made it happen. But, but Jeff's a wonderful young guy, and I wish Jeff and the rest of the organization that have come out with these new ETFs uh, uh, well. Now, they're so new. They're just literally months on the market. And uh, if you saw the performance for those first few months, you'd be very happy. You'd see that they were... Uh, number one, doing better than their competition on average, and number two, uh, actually, in a, it's a short period of time, but even doing better than the indexes that they're, uh, that, and not in every case, but but in most cases, and their expenses are lower than the Wisdom Tree uh, uh, International Small Cap uh, ETF by about twenty basis points, I believe. So. Uh, we will, I am sure, uh, in the next year, uh, be adding uh, ETFs from uh, Avantis, and uh, and and I, I think they're going to uh, be big competition because they're applying all that good research from DFA uh, to this uh, new family of ETFs, as well as offering uh, open-ended mutual funds. Um, so there you go, Malcolm. I, I hope that uh, um, hope that uh, makes you feel good that we're going to have them in there. But I have a hunch uh, there are going to be some people like yourself who will add them long before <laughs> before we recommend them because we do need them to grow and and uh, and and to show their show their stuff. We don't want to do it just because we know and like the people. We want to do it because it's the right thing. Uh, this next question, number three, um, is is really uh, it, it's a great question because it allows me to address an important topic 
uh, for our listeners. Uh, and the, the question says, Hi, Paul, I'm a longtime listener to your podcast, but one of the things I've never heard you mention is structured notes. My wife and I uh, were looking for a new investment advisor, and uh, structured notes were pitched by one company uh, and uh, pitched based on its diversification and limited downside risk. Some friends of mine have researched these a little bit, and they seem to be complicated, and there are a lot of moving parts. It seems too good to be true and possibly a reason not to get involved. But what are your thoughts on this type of investment? Well, I'm not going to get deeply into structured uh, uh, notes. But I want to uh, talk for a second about somebody who has looked carefully at structured notes. And some of you may remember that one of my goals for last year was to create a list of people. It started out as 10 top truth-tellers. I wanted you to uh, to know about the people that I trust and that if you chose to expand beyond what we're doing and the others that you're depending on now, that these would be people that I would certainly encourage you uh, to follow. But one of those, and I'll actually be reading some of his work in the coming months, is Larry Swedrow. He is definitely on my list of top 10 truth tellers. And he has written a lot about alternative investments. And there's an article, and we will include a, a link to this article in the notes regarding this, uh, uh, this particular podcast. But, but, he, but he says, he says, one of the most popular fairy tales is the Grimm Brothers Snow White. In order to eliminate her competition for the fairest in the land, the evil queen dresses as an old woman and offers Snow White a beautiful red apple. Despite a stern warning from the seven dwarves, Snow White cannot resist the temptation of the apple. She takes the, the, the bite that uh, sends her into a deep sleep. And then the next heading is adult fairy tales. Wall Street's product machine is continuously pumping out fairy tales. Their product innovations can also be called fanciful tales of legendary deeds. The only difference is is they are intended for adults. Like the Queen's Apple, uh, they have shiny features designed to entice naive investors. And despite the many fanciful tales available, almost all of them have one thing in common. Despite their seeming appeal, they have attributes that make them more attractive to the seller than the buyer. Typically, these products fall into the category of what we refer to as structured products. Unfortunately, Larry says, these products are popular for the same reasons many financial products are popular. Either they carry large commissions for the sellers 
or they so greatly favor the issuers that they push the products to unsophisticated investors who cannot fathom the complexity but are assured by the salespeople and the advertising that these are good and often safe investments. Fortunately, there's a substantial amount of research on structured products. We know that sophisticated issuers create them because they lower their cost of capital and generate profits. Thus, whenever an individual buys a complex instrument from Wall Street, you can be certain they are being exploited. The reason is simple. If the issuer could raise capital more cheaply with a straightforward and simple debt instrument, they would do so. Thus, the question isn't whether an investor is being taken advantage of, but only how badly And then he goes on to review the evidence, and you'll find that evidence in the the link that we have. And any time I come upon a a question, like like this question I got regarding structured notes, I've read about them, but I, I do a search, structured notes, Larry Suedro, and read an article. Uh, And by the way, Larry is not a naysayer on 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 everything that you that Wall Street might like to have you invest in. He is a naysayer on those things that, in fact, the evidence shows that those products are for selling, not for buying. And I think Larry is just as dedicated as as I am and the other people that I know that are trying to get you to do the right thing. Um, I think you'll like his work. If you don't know it, you'll like his books, you'll like his articles. And uh, and so I, I hope this is a first step for you getting to know Larry. Number four. Have you seen any guidance for people who own whole life insurance? Uh, I own a lot of it and realize it isn't particularly smart. Then in parens, he puts the word now with an exclamation after it. Uh, But given that, uh, most all of it is paid up. And I'm trying to ascertain if there is a strategy out there that includes holding these and using them as a portion of my fixed income asset, then in parens, as a substitution for some bonds. Close parens. Now, I'm not an insurance expert, and so I'm, I'm not, I don't analyze insurance policies or make any recommendations one way or another. But I, I, I do know that if you have a paid-up policy, and even this in his email, he says he wishes that he had done a term policy instead and invested the difference. But when you have a paid-up policy, uh, you have an instrument that is internally uh, paying some sort of a return. And the first thing you should do is see what that return is. It won't Shock me to find out that it is um, three to four percent, and that means that in essence you have, in that regard, uh, the equivalent of 
a uh, uh, of a bond, uh, and the, then the question is, uh, if that is competitive, and and I think it it certainly would be competitive with short term money, uh, that the insurance paid up insurance uh, uh, creates the other value of a death benefit uh, that you're not going to have from uh, the uh, uh, the bonds. So my feeling is that yes, it 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 should be considered as a bond. It is you have a cash value there, uh, as opposed to when you originally purchased that that uh, policy. You didn't have any cash value, but you did have the uh, the insurance uh, value. One of the biggest shocks I ever had when I entered the financial community back in 1966 was to discover that people who were selling life insurance, whole life insurance policies, were in some cases actually getting more than the first year's premium or at a minimum you know, 80% of the first year's premium. It is huge motivation to sell those products. I'm not saying that they're bad. Uh, I, I, I think there are probably cases where they fit. And I, and I know that legitimate caring people sell life insurance policies, but, um, but the commissions were exorbitant. And I might add, the harder a security is to sell, the higher the commission. That is generally the way it works. Because the the people who are motivating salespeople, if it's really hard to sell something, then you, nobody wants to work hard for nothing. If they're going to have to work hard, you got to pay them a lot. And that's the way it works in the securities business. And number five, I am 27 with a wife and two-year-old daughter. I have access to a high-yield savings account through work that pays 5.25%. The interest is paid every month with the option of reinvesting once per quarter. Hypothetically, would $150,000 be best invested uh, as a principal balance in this account, referring to the guaranteed uh, five and a quarter, uh, and dollar cost averaging all of the interest each month into a different investment account in the market, uh, keeping the original balance untouched? Or would the $150,000 be better served by investing in the market where the principal balance and interest grow together? The second option is obviously less stable, but opportunity for better return on the principal balance. Well, I am not sure of a lot of things. I am not sure uh, how this 27-year-old uh, with a wife and two-year-old daughter have uh, an extra $150,000. That's relatively remarkable right there. Could be an inheritance, could be a gift, uh, could, could be he does something in high tech and he had a had a uh, option uh, that he converted and cashed out. Who knows? But it's important to know what that is, and it's important to know what it's for. If it's being saved as a down payment on a house, um, then uh, I would think uh, that uh, uh, the idea of taking that 
interest and investing it would 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 be okay. Um, but generally, when you know you're going to need a certain amount of money in a given amount of time, you don't put it at risk. You make sure you got the money there to do the deed. On the other hand, if this is long-term money, if if, uh, if I were an advisor and I was sitting down with them, I would want to know what they're doing about IRAs and uh, uh, and 401k investments. Uh, would they be better off to uh, be able to put this money uh, in a, a tax-free or tax-deferred environment that could grow for the next 40 years? Or are these uh, people who are part of the FIRE movement, who are trying to accumulate as much money as they can so they can retire young, in which case they may not want to put all their money into 401k and, uh, and, and IRAs because they need to put this money aside. So let's say they're going to retire at 40. They need, may need access. But if they are going to retire at 40, that's 13 years. Um, and, and, that, and let's say their goal is to retire at 40. How aggressive would you want to be with that money? Well, you could say, I want to be very aggressive, and if we don't get where we're trying to go in those 13 years, well, we could always work longer. Or if they've really got a plan where they think they can have as much money as they need in 13 years to retire, they might want to put that into something that is likely to grow uh, almost like a retiree. Uh, and and that may mean a balanced fund, not an all-equity fund. So it's all going to depend on what that money is for. Uh, I would want to make sure if, it, if, if, in fact, it was long-term money and it could go into IRAs and, and, uh, and 401ks, this is a lot of money. And I'd, again, I don't know whether it was a one-shot deal that created that money or just a lot of hard work and hard saving. But let's say it was a one-shot thing and it's not going to happen again. It may be you'd want to use that money to make sure you totally max out everything in terms of both IRAs for you and your wife uh, and, and, and your 401k and for that two-year-old daughter what about uh, education? Is it time for a 529? Uh, now, the, then the question is, okay, then do I dump all that money at one time into the market? I, I'm going to suggest that while the studies show that it historically makes sense to dump the money all in at one time, I'm, I'm thinking that this might be uh, something that could certainly be giving you an opportunity to dollar cost average into your 401ks and your IRAs over the next 10 years. Unless you're just a big earner and a big saver uh, and uh, and the plan needs, uh, needs to be considerably different, then that's where you need an advisor. And I am not one because I don't have all the answers and I don't have time to hear all the answers because I don't do that anymore. But you can see that you've got a lot of choices. Uh, I always worry when somebody is paying 5.25%, uh, uh, although I assume this is a, 
It might might be a small company who's borrowing money from their employees, uh, and and they are uh, financing the company's growth with employees' money. It's not illegal, and uh, they're paying them uh, a, a decent rate. Uh, certainly, the kind of a rate you might pay uh, with a high yield bond fund. Uh, question is, is this a really high-risk situation that uh, maybe that 5.25% isn't even enough for the amount of risk that somebody has taken? So many stories in this very simple question. Number six, um, I just saw your recommended portfolios. I wish I had seen them 30 years ago. I am almost 62 and may have to retire at 63. I have saved almost $2 million in stocks and bonds. Do you have a dividend portfolio for those going into retirement? Well, I don't have a specific uh, portfolio. Uh, It's easy, though, to recommend some because Vanguard and and other companies have similar kinds of, of, uh, of portfolios. Vanguards happen to be relatively low cost, but uh, they have a number of dividend-based stock funds. Now, I just have to warn you that dividend-based stocks can lose a lot of money in a severe bear market. In the 73 and 74 market, many companies that paid dividends uh, lost as much as 50% of their value. So, I don't want to suggest that because these are uh, companies, good companies. Uh, In fact, there's one called the High Dividend Yield Index Fund. Uh, And and I think you would enjoy going to Morningstar and looking at the list of companies in that portfolio. It's paying 3.2%. Uh, then then they have the equity income fund paying 2.7 uh, they have a, a dividend equity income uh, fund and by the way the dividend equity income fund lost between 30 and 40 percent in uh, in the uh, 2008 bear market but I, I want to go back to my 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 friend and truth teller Larry Swedro for a second a book that I have highly recommended, Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement, uh, has a lot of really good information in it, and one of those is Appendix D. Appendix D, is uh, the title is Should Investors Prefer Dividend-Paying Stocks? And the what it, in this chapter, I mean, it's many pages here, I don't know, four, five, six, seven, eight pages of this information. Uh, It says that stocks with the same exposure to common factors such as size, value, momentum, profitability, and quality, that those stocks have the same returns whether they pay a dividend or not. Warren Buffett made this point in September of 2011 after announcing a share buyback program for Berkshire. 
Some people went after Berkshire Buffett for not offering a cash dividend. In his 2012 shareholder letter, he explained why he believed that share buybacks uh, were in the best interest of shareholders. He also explained that any shareholder who preferred cash can effectively create dividends by selling shares. He then goes into a a, a good discussion about uh, the power of dividends and the math of cash dividends uh, versus creating your own dividends. He goes into taxes. Uh, he has then he shows some some evidence and then the uh, the implications and what he calls the dividend disconnect. Uh, the reason that people see a dividend as something different than simply uh, uh, than selling shares of stock. The conclusion, he says, is that both theory and historical evidence demonstrate that dividends are just another source of profit along with capital gains, and that dividends mechanically reduce the price of stocks. Yet many investors treat the two sources of profit very differently, with the negative consequences, both in terms of lower returns and greater risk, and you'll see this uh, in the in the in the evidence that he that he provides. So I, I just for those interested in that discussion, I hope you'll uh, check out from the library or buy it if you if you want to you want to get it right away. Uh, your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement. Uh, by Larry Swedrow. Number seven, my 401k plan doesn't have a target date fund offering. I plan to open a Vanguard Roth IRA target date fund as soon as I have the $1,000 saved required to open the account. The maximum allowed contribution is much higher Uh, for a 401k than an IRA, so I won't be able to put a higher percentage of money in the target date fund. What do I do in this situation? Do I try to pick funds in the 401k to match the buy and hold strategy as best I can? Well, basically, uh, that's not so difficult for for most 401k investors. You can create your own 401k. If you went to the Vanguard 2060 target date fund, you would see exactly what they own, and you would see, and I'm talking about their different equity asset classes, and you would see what you what you would have in bonds at your age. Now, you're a young investor, so they would have you about 10% in bonds. If you wanted to match what Vanguard's target date fund would give you, you would put 10% in bonds, and the rest you would split about 70% in S&P 500 or or the... uh, total market index for the US then you could put the balance uh into a uh, into an international total market index or something similar to that 
You might have a large cap international developed markets fund in your 401k. So you could do it with the bond fund, with the S&P 500, and with the international large cap blend fund. That's what you could do. But if you want to do something better, get rid of the bonds. If you're young, the last thing you need in your 20s maybe even in your 30s, is any money in bonds. You want all your money going into equity. You want it going into equity at low prices. You don't want the market to go up right now. You want the market to go down and pick up more shares. The market goes down, you're guaranteed to buy more, not less of these great asset classes. So a bull market right now is not necessarily beneficial to you as a young investor. But you could put together a portfolio that is 70% in the S&P 500 or 70% in the total market index. And you could put the other 30% in the international fund. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where's the small cap value? Oh, I'm sorry. There isn't any. Well, then what about what about taking some of that money? Maybe Maybe taking 20% of the money you're putting aside and put that into small cap value or small cap blend if that's what they have. And now the other 80%, what you could do is you could put 70% of the 80% in or 56% in the uh, US, uh, U.S. index and the balance uh, in the uh, international. You can build your own. And you can build it better than Vanguard does, partly because, well, a couple of things. I don't know what your expenses are like in your uh, in your 401k plan, but maybe the expenses will actually be lower than if you were uh, putting the money into the Vanguard uh, uh, target date fund. So there are things you can do. And if you don't have small cap value in your 401k or even small cap, what about this? Why don't you put what you can into your, into your uh, at least up to the match, into your 401k, and then put that other money into a small cap value ETF uh, in an IRA, in a Roth IRA, uh, so that you can start to build a small cap value portion of your portfolio. I hope that helps. You can do it. It isn't isn't that difficult. And number eight, if you were early in your investing career, late 20s, early 30s, which portfolio would you personally choose between portfolio seven and portfolio eight? And if you choose the all-value portfolio in eight, would you add 10% REITs to it? Why or why not? Well, um, first of all, for, for those that don't know about portfolio versus portfolio eight, in portfolio seven, you've got a balance, basically 10% each of U.S. large blend, international large blend, U.S. large value, international large value, U.S. small 
Blend, International Small Blend, U.S. Small Value, International Small Value, Emerging Markets, and REITs. Now, that is what we call the ultimate buy and hold portfolio, all equities. And uh, and I think that has the potential of adding 1% to 2% a year over the S&P 500 all-equity portfolio. Now, when we go to portfolio 8, we get rid of the blend. And so you're left uh, with a whole bunch of large and small U.S. and international and even some emerging market um, in value. So basically, it's an all-value portfolio. Now, understand, there is no such thing as a pure all-value portfolio because they're going to have some growth in it. And sometimes in what we think is a small cap, they'll even have some mid cap. So it's nothing as pure as we would like it. Now you ask me which one I would choose. And you might say, uh, if I had it to do all over again. Well, the problem with if I had it to do all over again is I know exactly what the results were in that, in, in, let's say, uh, over a 30- or 40-year period, uh, and not all these asset classes were were available, but they are available now. So I know, yeah, sure, all value would be the right answer. And you have, you have talked about uh, in the late 20s and early 30s, so you're not necessarily saying you would be all value for uh, the rest of your life in the equity part of your portfolio. So, uh, yeah, I think depending on the risk tolerance of the individual, I would. I would say the all-value portfolio would be good. If you go to the ETF recommendations, if you go to the homepage of paulmerriman.com and you see where it says ETFs along the major bar and you just go in there and look at the best-in-class recommended portfolios. One of those is an all-value portfolio. So you got U.S. large and small value, international large and small value, and an emerging market um, small uh, uh, fund, which, which has a lot of value in it. So it's broadly diversified, and 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 you'll see the percentages. And I'm not asking to put all your money in in uh, in emerging markets, uh, but I would be comfortable with that uh, as uh, something in the late 20s and early 30s. Uh, and I think the return will be higher, and I think the volatility will be higher. We'll actually in the coming weeks. Uh, talk about the returns in these different portfolios uh, in uh, 2019. So you'll see a, you know, quite a range between the, uh, uh, the simplest, the S&P 500, and uh, then the more diversified uh, portfolios. Well, there you go, my friends. Uh, some plans for 2020, uh, answers to a few questions. Um, I wish I had the energy to... Uh, Spend a couple more hours uh, doing q and A. I I really enjoy doing it. And I know there's only so much you can take in listening, but uh, I hope something in there will be uh, valuable, helpful to you in building your portfolio. And uh, 
When we come out with the new 401k and when we bring the book out, uh, I'm really anxious for your for your feedback. Uh, I am hoping when the when the uh, 401k plan, I think the first one we'll do will be the thrift savings plan. And boy, would I love it if you would contact all your friends who uh, who work for the U.S. government. Uh, and tell them about uh, that piece that we do when it comes out. And when the the new book, it's a very simple book. It's made for people in their uh, 20s and early 30s. And, and uh, uh, it, 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 it talks about these very simple decisions they've got to make that are truly life-changing if they make it right. And what I'm hoping is that you will share that book with as many of your uh, young family members as possible, even high school kids. Uh, you know, pay them a few bucks to read the book. It won't take very long, but I would love your feedback, what they got out of it, and it's coming, and uh, that is so valuable to us. And and so when you want to get a hold of me and send that email to me directly, just send it to paul at paulmerriman.com. Uh, when those things come out. I would really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have an amazing 2020. I know I am, because I know I'm going to lose some weight. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.